Welcome to Story Comic Presents, where we interview amazing storytellers and artists. This is episode 86. I am your host, Barney Smith of StoryComic.com, and we are excited to have with us the internationally acclaimed folk entertainer and author, Rick Polari. Rick, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Barney. You know, this is a wonderful thing that you're doing, that you're giving authors a chance to be able to talk about their book. You know, we just went through this pandemic and, and those of us who put out a, uh, a book during this time, it was very difficult to, to get any kind of attention. So it, it's really a gift that you're giving all of us to give us a platform in order to tell our story. You're, you're welcome. And you are, as we, as we said before we went on the air, you're, you're here in Vermont as well. You, you moved here in 1980. So uh, not born here, but I'm sure people people give you some credit knowing that at least at least you've been here for 40 years. So that comes for some. Well, right? you know, it, it's I as I was explaining to you all, you know, before we started that you know Vermont is a hard teacher, and uh, and and rightfully so. You have to be tough to live here, right. and you have to be able to get through the winters. And uh, I think that. You know, those people who don't have enough stamina don't stay. And that's why a lot of the, you know, the, that old joke about, you know, the person's been there for about five years and uh, and every day, you know, he waves to his neighbors and they never <laughs> acknowledge him. And then one day the, the husband says to the wife, well, he's been here about five years. I think we'll wave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So it looks like you get one of your one of your friends, Al Poindexter from Florida, is watching. So yeah, Al. Al is a is a great artist himself. He's a, a five string banjo player, and he has a long neck banjo like me, and plays the twelve string guitar, and he puts out a lot of great albums. Uh, down down, he's over from you know that writer Stetson Kennedy. Okay, Did you ever hear of him? I've yeah, heard of him, yeah. And so Al has been associated with the Stetson Kennedy Foundation down there in Florida. So it's always good to see Al. He, you know, he kind of ups the game a bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're embarrassing him. He's blushing, he said. So yeah. <laughs> so, so, so Rick, normally what we do is we, 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 we jump in in this, uh, how, how we do things. Or we jump in and have people talk about the bit of their background. But you just, as you said, you just published uh, – 526 memoir called Banjo Man. That game, 526 pages. That is, uh, that's so. So, what do we want to do is kind of for, maybe what we should do is just jump in for you to kind of talk about, uh, you know, talk about the memoir because, in a way, you're also be talking about your background and how you got into sure. how, how the book was created. And I'm curious also, halfway through the conversation, is um, the how is Banjo Man different from your the book you came out in two thousand four called the uh, uh, The Road Is My Mistress? So, how are the differences between those two? You know, because when I wrote the first book, yeah, you know, uh, I have a copy here. My wife is a hand bookbinder, so this Ooh. is my presentation copy. You see, okay. it's fancy dancy. When I wrote this book, I didn't. Really know anything, uh, Arnie, about writing books, mm. and I, I it, it was very crazy because I was at a, a, a <laughs> I was at a a hobo gathering, uh, and it was a bunch of old hobos, and there was this guy Fran, who the hobo minstrel, who was putting together these little pamphlets for the different hobos because it was an old old tradition for the traveling people that you know you would have a little book that you could sell on the you know as you're passing through town. And so he had done that for some of the old hobos. And he said, Rick, I'd like to, to help you and make you a book. Well, I said, yeah, that would be great. And he had no idea what he was in for because <laughs> instead of getting like the usual 50, you know, odd pages or, or less, you know, he was getting hundreds of pages. And he had these, these computers that he put together from the dumpster. So he had like them, like Frankenstein computers and they were corrupting all the files and we didn't know what we we're doing. So all the files are coming in. They're corrupted. I'm sending them here, sending them there. Right. And, uh, and you know, finally, you know, we decided that uh, this was going to be a real book. Yeah. 
you know, this was not going to be the like anything he did before. And so that's when I really started seriously deciding that, you know, people had been saying, you know, Rick, you should write a book. We like your storytelling. And I had a whole bunch of different things that I had written over the years that were in my file draw, uh, you know, some for little magazines and, you know, but the thing is, you know, going back, if you turn back the clock when I was, an, you know, a young kid growing up in New Jersey, I really uh, hated to write. Uh, and I, I wouldn't even carry a pencil. And my teachers would go, Richard, where's your pencil? And I didn't have a pencil. <laughs> I, I, I didn't like to write. Uh, and it wasn't until years later when I was living in Poland for, I had a, a fellowship from the Polish government and uh, Pete Seeger sent me this letter, you know, who was my mentor, who I learned a lot from Pete. And he was the one who said, Rick, are you keeping a journal? It's important. You got to write everything down. And I mean, it's Pete. So of course I, you know, I started writing a journal and I've been writing a journal ever since then. And it was the be, between the journal and the, the, the things that were in my file cabinet that I started putting together this book. And it was hard. I mean, for those people out there who have been thinking about writing a book, uh, I think it's, it's one of the most, um, most difficult and rewarding things that you can do. Right. Because it really is hard, especially if you don't know what you're doing you, and, you, and, and you're working with a bunch of hobos. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, but you learn along the way. Right. And and the thing is that uh, why I, you know, so I went from from, you know, the, the original book. I'll show you the type, the cover here is this is this is the original book that's inside of this finely bound leather and the new book is this yeah. uh, and uh you know I, and my friends they tease me they said rick most people write a book that you can't put down you wrote a book you can't pick up <laughs> <laughs> and so the reason the reason that i wrote this book was at 2003 when i i, I published this first book a lot of the seeds were planted, but the trees didn't grow yet. Okay. Okay. So there were a lot of things put in motion. I, I was starting to do things. And it, it wasn't until after the book came out that I started really doing a lot of the things that I had dreamt about. That's when I started, you know, playing with Utah Phillips. You know, I had just met him then, but, you know, we started doing some concerts. I started doing the bigger concerts. I started doing more international travel. And uh, and the sad part, Barney, to tell you the truth, the reason I had to write this book is because all my mentors passed away. Right. Yeah. I had mentioned them in the first book, and it was time to say goodbye. Right. And I felt it was really important for me to have that closure and to tell tell these people what you know and and share the lessons that I learned from these great mentors. And, and I, I mean that in, in the best of ways. I mean, you know, Pete Seeger, Utah Phillips, Jimmy Driftwood are legendary kind of characters. Uh, there was Sis Cunningham. There were so many people. And they all they all saw that you were you were trying to carry on this old tradition and they were there to give you what you needed and uh, and help you to grow. And uh, I felt that there'd be people who are getting involved in this music and they wouldn't have that opportunity to meet these people. So I wanted to share everything that I experienced so that if somebody was learning about folk music or getting passionate, involved in I was when I was a kid, that they could read what what was Pete Seeger really like? Mm. You know, what was you know Utah Phillips? How was it to sit around and 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 talk with Utah or or Jimmy Driftwood who wrote the Battle of New Orleans? So it it became um a, an important part of my mission in the book to do that is put all those stories. And, and and actually have the things that they told me in this book so that, you know, people could learn from that. Right. 
And so that was your, so that was basically, as you're saying, is like your, it's, it, it's almost this memoir was, you know, uh, almost an, an homage to your mentors as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was. It, it, it was, uh, I guess it was almost like a love letter <laughs> to, to say thank you for yeah. all, all of the things that, that, uh, that I learned from them because they, they changed my, my world. Mm -hmm. they, they, they really did. And um, the kind of, of life that I was blessed to live for so long, you know, um, I mean, cause this is like, you know, this pandemic put, stopped it, right. You know, for a whole year, I've been just talking to screens until recently. Yeah. And, uh, but I've done an awful lot of traveling. Right. Uh, and I, I did uh, school tours that took me to all the lower 48. I played in every state in the lower 48. And then later on, I went up to Alaska and went to Hawaii. So I've been in every, you know, every state in the United States and, and did some sort of performance. And then, you know, in Australia, in Israel, in Turkey, over in, uh, in Scotland and Poland and Germany and France and Spain, all of these experiences, uh, I met with musicians, and that's in the book too, right. about you know being with uh, all these wonderful musicians. So on one hand, you have these well-known musicians, but on the other hand, you have a lot of people that you never heard of, but yeah. they're just as important, like my friend Lon Austin from over in uh, in Phoenix, Arizona, who runs all of these festivals and 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 makes things happen, you know? And uh, people over in Germany that, that I know. There's all of these people, Barney, that really love this music so much that they're willing to go way beyond just the fact of playing it, but they love it so much they want you to love it too. Right. So they're going to create an opportunity for you to uh, participate in it. Right. And, and that's in the book too. So that's the other part of that, you know, giving gratitude for all of these people who do that, you know, who do the community radio stations, you know, who do the community TV, who do all the things like, like you're doing right now, you know, so that other people can benefit from your work. And so talk to us about, uh, like you mentioned before, with the, with the pandemic and things have closed down. Um, there's, a, there's a term that I learned that it's the opposite of homesick. It's called the way sick. So as somebody who travels as that and did that, did you suffer a lot being having to be locked down, suffering from some away sickness? And, and how did you deal with that? Oftentimes, my mind would flash onto an obscure street in the middle of Europe or somewhere in Australia, I would just see a place. Yeah. And, you know, it, there was so many visions in my mind that uh, from all the years traveling. So it was, it, I missed the people, but I also just missed being in certain places. Right. And like I said, it sometimes it was like just a round roundabout in the middle of England that I used to go <laughs> go to, you know, do tours in. Yeah. Uh, but it also gave me a lot of time to think, and to think about all the years that I spent out on the road. You know, I did ten years uh, of tours in Germany, and ten years over in Scotland and England. Uh, so that's a lot of time. Right. Getting to know those people. But the thing was, I was doing that and I didn't know as many people here because mm. I was out on the road. So a lot of people, they wouldn't even know that if I'd be home, they wouldn't even think of calling me because I was never here. Right. And so I, I really, just a few years ago, was inspired by... Um, a, a lot of people like Michael Jonathan, who does Wood Songs uh, radio, and and George Hamilton uh, the Fifth, uh, who does this thing called Viva Nash Vegas, and I said, you know, it would be really cool to try to put together some community things. So from Michael Jonathan, we we kind of worked out this this idea of a song farmers uh, group where 
people from the community just get together to play music and talk and and it's not about a performance and for the you know for from Viva Nash Vegas I put together the great Vermont barn dance where it was like a 1940s kind of radio show where everybody got to you know go around one microphone and sing together and there was a variety show with storytelling and music and uh, yeah I talk about some of these things you know in the book also about the importance of community and uh, you know because if you don't have community at home then it's always the grass is always greener you're always mm -hmm. thinking about what's out there and what you want to start doing is is have the same appreciation for your community here and to take once again what you've learned and try to share it with the community right so talk to us a bit about the the actual book itself so as we it's a memoir does it start um, back in the early '70s, when you like a few years before you started playing with Pete Seeger, does it start? Oh, it starts when I was born. <laughs> it starts when my, you know, my father in the Navy and and uh, and him hitchhiking back to uh, my mother's already in the hospital, and he's hitchhiking back, and he doesn't have much money. He has only enough money to buy a bus ticket or he could take that money and buy a bouquet of flowers. So he buys a bouquet of flowers and doesn't realize how far it was to, to walk. <laughs> By the time that he got there, all the flowers were <laughs> And uh, that's sort of like, you know, that this kind of, you know, you, one of the things that, you know, you gotta be real. Right, Barney, you got to be real. It's right. it's not like okay, you know, all, you're this musician and, and traveling all this stuff. Well, where did you start? Right. And and this whole idea. And I, I was just reading the story, you know, on on my little live stream about my, you know, when I was a young kid, and uh, because my father was hiding this fact that he was dyslexic, and my mother was from Poland and she didn't read them. weren't, weren't a lot of books until I got my encyclopedias and that fired up my imagination. And then I had this imaginary friend that I didn't know about. I only found out about it, was reminded about it you know, a few years ago, who was like this professor. Uh -huh. And this professor would like take me on adventures you know, on hot air balloons and uh, you know, in Africa and all kinds of things. And my parents thought I was a little bit wacky. Uh, and uh, but my imagination was fired up, and I was like having all these adventures. Right. But those adventures actually became reality yeah. later on in my life, and, and and that's what I was talking about earlier was that um, the the seeds of creativity were in me since I was a little boy, and I was looking for a way to express myself, and it wasn't until I found music that it opened the door. Mm. And so, yeah, because that's every time you like, you know, you know, reading a, a memoir of a of a musician of some sorts. Who was the person that put that instrument in your hand? Well, you know, the, you know, there, there was a lot of, uh, you know, as a as a young person, you you have a, a lot of musical exper ex experiments, let's right. say, where you try this instrument and you, you're trying to find something that's right for you. Right. And it wasn't until the banjo came into my life that uh that everything changed you know and this is my banjo uh, that's been with me since the very beginning really okay. yes this is my banjo and uh you know i uh there's a lot of funny stories that that are in the book one one that pete really loved was i was trying to to learn how to play this banjo and i didn't know that the difference between a five string banjo and a four string so I, I my mom made me take lessons at this this uh, music store, and he didn't play the banjo. He had a le, le, an electric Les Paul with a Mel Bay book, and I had this tenor banjo, and I was I, I was wondering why it didn't sound right. right. And one day I I happened to see Pete Seeger on TV, you know, on Sesame Street, and he had this five string banjo, and I uh, I went back to that instructor and I said, Well, I saw this guy he has a five string banjo. And he says, listen, kid, you learn how to play these four strings and we'll drill a hole and stick another peg in. We <laughs> <laughs> knew nothing about the banjo. Mm -hmm. And uh, and of course, I, I was able to get a Pete Seeger instruction book and I learned, uh, taught myself, you know, the simple strums that, that were in the book. And it was 
I, this is a fun story. This is in my book. So here I am, I'm trying to learn how to play the, this is before I met Pete. So I, I'm still in high school and I'm hitchhiking around and I'm with my high school buddy who I kind of talked him into the, the fact that he could play the mandolin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he had his mandolin and we're hitchhiking uh, and we go, we hear about this place in New Jersey called Albert's Cabin, uh -huh. Albert's Cabin. And it was like this hunter's lodge in the middle of the Pine Barrens. And so we, we get down to uh, down in Southern Jersey in a music store and we're talking, we don't know where we're going. All we know is like Albert's Cabin. So we're going like, we talked to the guy. I said, did you ever hear of Albert's Cabin? And the guy goes, well, boys, I'm going there tonight. You can come with me. So <laughs> we, you know, we just climb in the back of his car and we're driving down the New Jersey, we're driving down the New Jersey Turnpike. And all of a sudden, no, it was the Garden State Parkway. And he's driving and then he makes a quick turn. And now he's driving on the opposite side of the road, the wrong way. And uh -oh. he goes into the woods. Now, Barney, you can imagine. Now, here we are, young kids, and we're getting freaked out. Right. Like, who is this guy? We just went down the wrong way, down the, 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 the highway, and now we're in the woods. And then there was like all these abandoned refrigerators and all kinds of things. And uh, we're starting to think like, oh God, he's an ax murderer. <laughs> Kill us. I know it. I know it. And like Dwayne and I are looking at each other and there came to a point where there's this mirror that was stuck in a tree and the headlights of our car flashed back at us. And I, oh God, we, we really felt like that was it. You know, the psycho moment, you know, and then all of a sudden we heard the sound of music and he pulls in and there's this old cabin and all of these people are sitting on the front porch and there's these two, two uh, banjo players. One's a young kid like me. And there's this other, this old guy, you know, and he's got this homemade banjo. And he's sitting there. And and uh, and so I came over and I took my banjo out. And, you know, I, I start to play something like Cripple Creek. And they're smiling and everything. And, and, uh, and the old man, he goes... Uh, well, my name is Sam Hunt. I've been living here in the Pine Barrens all of my life. You know, I make these banjos myself. I have the wood. I hide them underneath of my bed. You know, everywhere you go, there's some wood. And I build old boats, too. I got lots of boats. And this guy kept talking like he wasn't taking a breath. He was, like, talking fast and furious. And I'm listening to him. I never heard anybody like old Sam Hunt. And then he goes, well, we're going to play that old Joe Clark. Do you know that one? Well, I saw it in the book, but I didn't know it. Yeah. And he stops and he calms down and he goes, well, we're going to teach it to you right now. He goes, you take your finger and slide it down like that. Can you do that? I went, he said, good. He said, put one finger behind the other. Now pull off like this. I did that. Then hit it open. Then fret that finger on the second string on the first fret. And then hit it, hit it open. So I went, and then we started playing that song. And that's how I learned it. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, so I was traveling around and, and, you know, sometimes I'd be hitchhiking. I had my banjo, always carrying my banjo with me. I'm driving. I was, I was hitchhiking one time and the car is driving. And he, he was first on the other side of the highway. He turns around and he wants to pick me up. And I look in the back and he's got a banjo sitting in the back. <laughs> he goes, where are you going? And I told him that I was going to see some friends to play some music. I said, oh, great, but first let's go see my friend. And then we drove over to some other guy's house <laughs> and, and uh, he played some, some music. We played music together. And then we all together went over to my friend's house and stayed there. They, they stayed the whole night. And uh, boy, it, it, we played music all night long. And you know, Barney, that's the whole thing was once this music came into your life, it was like a, a journey. Right. No, it was taking you all over the place. And I, you know, I, I was still in high school. Now I'm starting to play with all these different people. And I would go to these Pete Seeger concerts all the time, you know, and, and I, I, I got to see him and maybe say a word or two, but I didn't know him. 
but uh, he was playing over in Central Park with Arlo Guthrie. And my mother took my two sisters that day. They went down there and uh, all the people were setting out all blankets and stuff. And uh, my sister Lisa says, uh, what are you doing? They said, well, the Pete Seeger and Arlo Guthrie are gonna be here. My, my sister recognized the name Pete Seeger because I had all these records and books. Right. And she kind of thought that we were like really close because you know I had all of these records that I must really know Pete. And so she said, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> she took my younger sister and they went over to the guy who's near, near the gate. And they said, my, my brother's uh, backstage with Pete Seeger, can you take us there? And he does. Now, I don't know anything about this, but Pete, they go and visit with Pete and his wife, Toshi. And they have a talk or something like that. And I know nothing about that. Later on in the night, you know, uh, I uh, <laughs> I hear Pete say, well, tomorrow we're going to have a big concert over in Hoboken, New Jersey. Benefit for the Clearwater. Everybody's invited. So uh, I'm all excited. The next morning, I take my banjo. I'm ready to go out the back uh, door. And my sister says, did you know that Pete Seeger files his nails? Like, what? <laughs> and then... You know, I get over to Hoboken, and there's a few young people like myself, and like many times before, I take out my banjo, I'm playing along with them. Who comes over? But Pete, yeah. he takes out his big guitar, and he's smiling, and he's playing along. I'm freaking out, Barney. I'm saying like, oh my God, you know, here I am playing with Pete Seeger, you know? And the music stops, and Pete looks like, look, he, the music stops, he looks at me, and he goes, I haven't seen you before. Who are you? And I stumble out. Uh, I'm Rick Polari. He goes, Rick, I met your sisters yesterday. I'm like, <laughs> they told me you were a good banjo player. Let's go up on the stage. We'll play a couple songs together. Wow. He brought me up, and I stayed and uh, played played the whole show with with some of the Clearwater uh, other young people and Pete. And then Pete started calling me up, and then my world changed, Barney. That was that was the beginning. Wow. And and it's one thing, you know, when you have a dream, you know, like I had a dream that someday I would meet Pete. And once that happened, that was when the real work began. Because, well, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to play with him again? Well, I hope so. But the bigger journey happens because then you have to figure out what are you going to do with your life? Right. How are you going to become a musician? And that's what the, this book is sort of about that, that journey you know, of learning uh, the songs from Pete and Sis Cunningham at the early on, learning the union songs. And uh, that was the beginning of that later on. At the, like I said, that's one of the reasons I had to write this book is because so early on when I was, you know, learning the, the labor songs uh, from about Black singers from, from Pete and, and listening to stories from Sis Cunningham, I uh, I was really enthusiastic about this tour that that Pete Woody Guthrie, Mill Lampell, uh, and Lee Hayes did as the Almanac Singers in 1941. There was a paragraph in Pete's book, The Incomplete Folk Singer, that talked about it, and uh, and so I was really fired up. And I talked to Sis Cunningham because she was in the Almanac Singers later on. She told me things about it, and as I got to know Pete, I would always ask him questions about the almanacs. And I had this idea back in the 1980s that I would recreate that 1941 tour. Hmm. And Pete was enthusiastic and he started, you know, giving me all kinds of contacts. Now I was too green. I didn't know what I was doing. I'd call up these union halls and they go, what do you want kid? And I said, well, I wanted to do this show honoring the almanacs. Almanac, schmalmanac, we're not interested in no almanac singers because of their, you know, their background of, of being, you know, uh, really kind of radical. Uh, right. they, did, they didn't want to talk about it. And I got a little discouraged and I put that in my files uh, and, and kept it there for many years. I kept thinking about it. I kept trying to do that. And then I was on tour and um, with my friend Rick Nessler and another Rick, Rick Valla. We were called the, the Ricks. We were out there performing together. And uh, uh, we got invited to the Woody Guthrie archives okay. uh, and uh, Woody's daughter, Nora Guthrie, brought us in and showed us all these writings of, from, from Woody Guthrie and Lead Belly and everybody. And I said to Nora, I said, do they have a lot of material about the Almanac singers here? And she said, yes. 
that lit another light bulb. So I, I, I kind of saved that idea. I got, I kept asking people if they were interested in doing something. I didn't have the right contacts or the right, you know, connections with the unions to really get the job done. Right. A friend of mine, George Mann, was a, also a folk singer, labor singer. Uh, he, uh, through a mutual friend, uh, we started playing together and I told George about this idea. And George said, let's do it. And before you know it, here it was. And I went back to the Woody Guthrie archives and I spent a whole day reading through all of the articles and writing things down. And then I spent a whole day with Pete Seeger and he told all of these stories about the almanacs. So then we had this whole master puzzle of what took place in 1941. And, uh, and then we started union halls hmm. and this time they were interested. Okay. George booked the last gig that the Almanacs did was in Buffalo, uh, and uh, first. So then we then we had this time limit that we had to actually fit the whole thing in, because we were following the path of the Almanac singers. Okay. Right. Exactly the well, not totally exactly because sometimes it was impossible, but as much as we could, we followed that that original 1941 tour. And when I did the research at the Woody Guthrie Center, I found out what they they really would happen back then is they uh, they were singing for the um, transport workers union in Madison Square Garden for twenty thousand uh, uh, workers there, and one of the delegates from the West Coast uh, started talking to Mill Lampell, and he said, "Why don't you come out, you know, out to California?" So they, and then they started having that uh, tour and they needed a, a way to get around. And so they made two records, four records, and they were able to buy a, uh, a 1932 Midnight Blue Buick touring car. Wow. That was formerly owned by a gangster named Joey the Mouth. <laughs> now, supposedly Joey didn't need it anymore. So when the Almanacs got it, it had bulletproof glass <laughs> and it had lead shields in the sidewalls. And uh, that's what they toured around in. So I started really learning about what took place. And then George and I did it. We did 9,000 miles across the United States playing in union halls in the same towns as the Almanac Singers. And that's, wow. that's sort of like the book really tells you all about what it was like, not only our tour, but the original tour, and also why did they go to those places? What was the union history there? Right. Now, I'm, I'm a member of the local 1000 Musicians Union. So, you know, uh, it, it was one of those kind of things, it was a, a lot of pride to be able to go into all of these union halls and to be sharing that story. So that's like one of the, the many, many different adventures that, uh, that you find in, in the book and uh, I guess one of the stories, would you like me to read a, a short little story? Sure, yeah, yeah. Now, one of the stories, in fact, once again, I mean, Pete was so important in, in my life that he was constantly uh, pointing me the way and, and opening up uh, more and more opportunities for me. And so let me see if I can find this. Yeah, you could find it, Rick. It would be nice. Oh, yes, it's here. Okay, I got it. And so, you know, the very first time this song was in print was from Pete. Right. He, he, I had sent him this, you know, because I would send him letters, you know, send him letters back and forth. I have like 64 letters from Pete Seeger giving me advice on him all kinds of things. <laughs> and, and so I used to send him things and I sent him this letter and it, he gave me a call and he said, Rick, he said, I didn't tell you, but pick up the Sing Out magazine. I put your story in there. Mm. So he put my story in his column, in his Appleseeds column. And, and this little story, uh, it was really interesting because then other people started, you know, the 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 chicken soup for the soul 
they have a, stories for a better world. They printed the story and right. more and more people kept printing it. So I'm just gonna read it to you, it's a, an interesting story. And now this is, I'm just kind of finishing a tour up in Alaska, okay? I was up in Alaska, I did a tour on the Maritime Highway. I, it was a, back then, if you were a performer, you could book yourself on the ferry and go from Bellingham, Washington, all the way up uh, on the ferry to Juneau. Uh, and then the, the ferry, what I was able to do was book extra things. So I went all the way out to, uh, to Haines and, uh, and did shows by float plane. So I talk a lot about that, but I'm coming back and I'm really tired. I'm wanting to go home and here we go. Okay. I was just getting back from touring Alaska and was ready to fly home out of Bellingham, Washington. But notice there was some kind of problem. The counter person was throwing her hands up in front telling everyone all the planes were having problems and they would not be able to fly today. You can just imagine the stress that was in that room. They told us that a bus would be provided to take us to Seattle. That was just a chance that some of us would be able to make our connections. Everyone was worried. We only had an hour and a half to make the connecting flights and the bus was not even at the airport yet. When the bus did finally pull up, the driver said in a nasty tone, well, they just pulled me out of bed after an all night shift and they expect me to perform a miracle and get you to Seattle in time to catch your flight. Good luck. Needless to say, everyone was in a really bad mood. I was loading my stuff into the bus. I had slung my banjo over my back when the bus driver said, what? Are you gonna play that thing in my bus? Well, I really didn't plan on it, I replied. I was only kidding, said the driver. But I started thinking about it and I reached inside my case and I pulled out my banjo. Well, what if I don't like it? Said an angry, worried woman. Then tell me and I'll stop, I replied. The bus drove off and the tension was horrendous. Then I started plucking away at a neat version of the old standard blue skies that I had learned from Pete Seeger. In a few minutes, I noticed that everyone was humming along. A few more minutes went by and I heard a few voices singing. I started singing too. And before long, the whole bus burst out in song. Even the bus driver sang along in his big baritone. One song led to another, and everyone seemed to have a request. Do you know you are my sunshine? Soon, photographs appeared as the passengers made friends and shared pictures of vacations, family members, newborn babies, and old friends. Everyone laughed and sang with food being passed around the bus. Before we knew it, we're pulling into the Seattle airport. We made it with time to spare, the bus driver called out. Everyone clapped their hands. Then he said, we would have never done it without the help of our banjo player. <laughs> Shouts of approval rang through the bus. As I got out, the people exchanged address and invitations and Few exchanged hugs, and then we all went our separate ways. This was the best ride I ever had, the driver said as I was leaving the bus. Thanks for your music. A few weeks later, back in the hills of Old Vermont, my mailbox was filled with letters and reminiscence of that magical musical bus ride. Wow. <laughs> And that, and that's the whole thing is, is that music is the door. It, it's a communication door. In these times when people have a hard time talking to one another because of politics, you can play music together. Mm. You know, you can play music no matter what your politics are. Right. You can share food together. You can 
share stories together. And that is the beginning of that bridge that connects us. Right. Yeah. So let me ask you then, Rick, because you've been, as I think you said in your biography, you've been doing this well on 50 years. There, what was stopping your book from being 526 pages to being 1,026 pages? What stories, what parts did you have to cut out that you, they, you must have had, a, had to do some editing on some of that stuff? Well, luckily, I had a wonderful editor, yeah. uh, Tim Brooks. I don't know if you know Tim. He's written a lot of books and he's involved with the Endangered Alpha, Alphabet Project. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he wrote this wonderful book that you you got to have him on your show sometime okay. because he, he is a fantastic uh, author. And he wrote this book, A Hell of a Place to Lose a Cow about his <laughs> hitchhiking adventures. And anybody who writes a book like that has to be my friend. Mm -hmm. So we, we were friends for many, many years. Uh, and we would we would have coffee time. We would meet uh, over at uh, Speeder and Earl's and we would sit around and we would discuss the different projects. And I told him I was working on this book and he said, well, let me take a look at it. So I, I gave it to him and he said, I'll help you. I'll help you. Yeah. And he said, don't worry about it. And uh, so he kind of gave me advice into shaping the book. Okay. And so we, we kind of determined, Barney, that a, the you know the stories had to have a couple of different things. They e either had to be a teaching kind of a story where where you learn something. They had to be a, a funny story, you know. They had to be sort of a, a a sad kind of story about life, you know. Those those are the criteria that we we kind of used. So um, we went through a lot of the stories because there's a lot of the stories that are in my first book that did not make the cut into the second book. Uh, and I wanted it to, once again, you know, to celebrate uh, my mentors. And so I wanted it to really show that, you know, when Pete came into my life is when my life really changed. And at the end of the book, we say goodbye to Pete mm. at a huge concert at a Lincoln Center in New York City. Mm. Uh, and there are all my friends from the Sloop Clearwater, all the musicians that I work with, a lot of the musicians that, that I admired, like Peter Yarrow uh, and Harry Belafonte, and, and all, they were all there. Everybody mm. was there honoring Pete. And I felt that that was the perfect way that uh, that told the whole story, right. you know. So that that was that was important to me that I wanted to have that in there, and uh, you know the things that didn't get in. Well, you know, that's okay. Is there is the, is there any thoughts of maybe looking at doing something else like an addendum book to this or anything for the stories that didn't make the cut that well, you still know, wanted I'm, people to hear about? You know, I, I think that uh, right now uh, I'm working on some creative projects of uh, I'm doing all of these watercolor paintings that I'm hoping to illustrate a children's book about, uh, oh, I should tell you that story. Okay. So I was down in a, in a hobo jungle, uh, you know, down at Pennsburg. You know, and and the hobo, and, and I'm not talking about bumps here. You know, Barney, the, the whole thing is, is a hobo, historically was a worker. It was somebody who works and wanders. You know, Utah Phillips used to say, a hobo works and wanders, a tramp dreams and wanders, and a bum just drinks and wanders. <laughs> so you never, you never call an old steam train riding hobo a bum. Right. It's disrespectful. They can call each other bums, right. you know, and, and they would, yeah. but don't, don't do that. Right. Because they were they 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 were agricultural workers, you know. I mean, it all goes back to the old days, you know, after the Civil War, where it's sort of like Vietnam, you know, in Vietnam, how it was hard for certain people to go back to life after the carnage that they experienced was well, right. the same thing in in the Civil War with brothers fighting against brothers and and the the country being divided. That these guys they they were called homeward bounds. And they they were going home, but they were going home slow. 
Mm. And they would go and, and, and hop the trains and they would carry uh, a pole. Now in the cartoons, they show a pole with a bandana on it. That wasn't it. The pole was to screw into a shovel, okay, or a rake okay. to make the job easier. They were workers. And, you know, they, they had, you know, all these different, you know, signs, the, the hobo codes. And you can see that over here, you know, the sign of the shovel. That's right. what you'd, think you'd find the, the sign of the shovel uh, right. scratched into the, you know, into a, the, maybe a water, the water tower, you know, right. showing that there's work in town. But anyway, so we're we're over at the Hobo Jungle where some of the old time steam riders were still living. They were still living, you know. They didn't live that long, but they were they were there and they'd sit around the campfire and they would tell stories. And uh, there was a queen of the hobos and and a king of the hobos. They were elected by their peers. Wow. And if you were a friend of the hobos, you would get dubbed. They gave me honorary names. They they get they dubbed me the uh, the uh, what's the the Grand Duke of New England hobos, <laughs> and, yeah, that that and and twenty uh, and two dollars might get you a cup of coffee, right? <laughs> but uh, so I I learned a lot from them and and wrote a lot of songs uh, uh, about that, you know. And um, so I just realized that Rick, so the hobo is short for homeward bound. Yeah, yeah, that's one of one of, one of the old things. So when a hobo catches the westbound, they catch the little last train up to heaven. And uh, so this is a song that, uh, that talks about Frog, one of the kings of the hobos, who caught the westbound. I live my life as a hobo. My only home is a soul train. I've been a frog and a king. Lord, I've done everything. Now I'm riding on that westbound train. Let jungle fires burn wild and free and pass my bottle around. Let the train whistle blow. Tell the old boat I'm a rod on the westbound. I slept in every old boxcar. I rode down every railroad line. Well, I don't have to boast. I rode coast to coast. Now I'm riding on that old westbound. Let jungle fires burn wild and free. I tie my bottle around. Let the train whistle blow. Tell the old folks I'm a rod on the westbound. Light a candle at the back of my boxcar and gather my good friends around. Let the old banjo ring while the hobos all sing. I'm a rod on the westbound. Let jungle fires burn wild and free and pass my bottle around. Let train whistle blow, tell the old boat I'm a rod, I'm the westbound. A boat hopped off a boxcar just outside of town. He found a quiet little jungle where he could lay his bindle down. He grabbed some dry firewood to brighten up the night. But when he struck his match, he saw an awful eerie sight. For the campfire glowed and sparkled with a brilliant rainbow flame, flickering and dancing like the headlight of a fast westbound train. When out of the smoke and cinders and through the fire air came the ghosts of some old hobos. He thought he met somewhere. They came and shook his hand as all good hobos do. Then they offered up a sput or two and they started boiling up a stew. Their calm and easy man manner finally calmed that young bo's fright. He asked if they could jungle up together and spend the lonesome night. Each of us caught the westbound, one bow said with a tear. 
But we all come back to Pennsburg, if only once a year, in the third week in September, when fall is almost near. We hobo out of heaven, and we jungle up right here. See, this old jungle is a mighty secret spot where hobos came year after year and camped on this very lot. It was one of the best gatherings that you could ever find where hobos were respected and treated oh so fine. Well, the moon started yawning, for it was almost dawn. The bows made up their packs and said they'd be moving on. Then there was a mighty whistle and a campfire filled with steam and all the hobos vanished like it was just a crazy dream. The young bow sat bewildered. He said, how could this really be? Is it something I've been drinking or is my mind just fooling me? Then he looked into the fire. And what he saw, he could not explain. For there were his hobo buddies riding on a fiery train. The train sounded one last whistle. And his hobo pal said, so long. Then a magic wind blew the flames out. And the campfire light was gone. The young bow packed his bindle. He walked down to the track. He hopped inside a boxcar, but he knew that he'd be back for the magic in Pennsburg's campfire still lives in all the hearts of every bow who went there and camped beneath the stars. And someday in the future, when all of us are gone, a space age traveler will light the fire and the legend will live on. Let jungle fires burn wild and free and pass my bottle around let train whistle blow tell the old folks i'm a riding on the westbound <laughs> that's amazing is is that going to be your children's book? Is that the one you're? Yeah, reading? that's the one I'm 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 doing all of these illustrations of of of, a, of the hobo community for that. But that's in my book. Uh, that that poem that I wrote called the the hobo's campfire. Uh, and so what happened is that when you go to a hobo uh, gathering, the first thing is that you have to start a campfire. And when when you start the campfire you put in all the the uh the ashes from different campfires all over the the country all the hobos from the east they bring in the, you know the ashes and they also bring ashes of some of the hobos who passed away and when they put those ashes in there sometimes there's like metallical things in there and it changes the the uh the flames into different colors and that's what inspired me to write that song wow, uh, not okay. the song but the poem the the song was was something totally different. It was about frog, and the, and the funny story about frog was that uh, his friends thought he had passed away, and they had a, a funeral for him, and it turns out that he didn't pass away at all. He was robbed. Somebody stole his identification, and we're pretending that they were him. <laughs> so I had written the song thinking that he was dead. And then, you know, of course, he, he said that he wasn't dead, but, the, you know, he, his words were, but now I know what my funeral is going to be like. <laughs> but the thing is, Barney, what, what happened is that um, when Frog did pass away just recently, yeah. uh, right before the pandemic, uh, his last wish was that I came out to the Hobo Cemetery in Britt, Iowa, and sing that song for him. And I went out there with my friend Rick Nestler. We're there in the Hobo Graveyard. And right there on Frog's tombstone is my song. The first, the it, <laughs> there's nice. the words to my song on his tombstone with my name. I was like, this is weird. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that that gives you the sense of how people, um, you know, sometimes we uh, as storytellers, as 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 songwriters, you know, we. Get, tell other people's stories because right. you know they might not have that gift to do that and we can celebrate their life by putting their life into into a song right wow wow that's amazing wow and so and is that is that one of your stories that's going to be that's in the book oh yeah yeah that there's there's a, a much more much more detailed thing about about that and and how we we were in a boxcar and experienced uh, this major hurricane <laughs> and what that was like. Oh yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, there's there's a, a few different stories about uh, about the hobo jungles uh, that that I've been to. Yeah, uh, we had. I mean, this is great, Rick. I mean, we have, as I said, you got. I, we didn't even get to talk about Polish bagpipes. We didn't even get to talk about all this other stuff. Um, so what I want to do is I want to show people, um, you know, at least, you know, uh, your, your website mm -hmm. at rickpolary.com. Yeah. This is where you can see your, your book is here. Uh, you have also all the lyrics to all your songs is on here. You have um, a great expansive website and people can get lost on this for hours. There's plenty of things to read. Um, and plenty of things to, uh, to to talk about on here as well. So what I like to do, Rick, is like when you get your children's book out, come back mm -hmm. on the show and we should talk about it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's really interesting. So far, I've got about 40, 40 drawings done. Uh, you know, well, I have more than that. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out exactly the, the best ones. Um, but I'm hoping to illustrate that that uh, that whole um, uh, you know I've got some really really cool pictures you know already about about right. that and uh, so that's that's one of the projects that that I'm hoping to do and I think you know I feel like in order for me to write another uh, another kind of a sequel to to this book I have to right. do a lot more traveling. Right. Uh, you know, because you you have to you have to live these stories. I mean, for me, right. you know, I mean, I didn't, or at least you don't know, have a real understanding of of what that's like. You know, I mean, people are always um, you know inspired by different things. Right. What you know, Barney? What 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 did you find the most interesting? Well, you know, I mean, you were talking about the Polish bagpipes. I, I mean, was was that interesting for you? Well, I think it was interesting because you were able to kind of connect a bit with your with your heritage, mm. um, and I think especially I think it's so important with, uh, I think it's so important that people kind of understand where they're from, you know, and just kind of you know, you know, kind of acknowledge and embrace some of that history, uh, and but as I say, it was a it's it is a. Um, it's been, I tell you what, though, Rick, it's been a genuine pleasure talking with you right now. And people can buy your book because they, they go to your website and yes, they're able yeah. to, to get it we, there. We made the choice. I mean, my first book was on Amazon and, and, and that kind of thing. Right. And my wife and I talked about it and we felt like we wanted it to be a personal interaction between me and the readers right. so that it wasn't on Amazon. It's not on Amazon. Right. And it, it is a kind of thing where people go to my website and, and order the book. I hand sign them. My wife makes uh, a, a leather, my, you know, she's a book, uh, book binder. So she makes a leather bookmark uh, and put a thank you card in it. You don't get that with Amazon. That's true. You yeah. know, we want it to be, you know, like you took the time to want my book. I take the time to make you um, something special. Right. Yeah. Well, great. So thank you. So thank you very much, Rick. So they can come to rickpolary.com mm -hmm. and they'll be able to, to see your book right there. And, uh, and, um, yeah. And yeah, come on back, Rick. This has been fun. <laughs> uh, probably a little bit different than, than what you usually do. <laughs> this has been great. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just felt that you can't really just talk about music. I had to share some music with you. I hope you didn't mind. <laughs> no, that was perfect. Thank you very much. My pleasure.
<laughs> That's an, what, what kind of what kind of flute is that? This is a Native American flute. Uh, this is a, like a new age Native American flute. Okay. It's a, it's a, it has an extra drone note on it. So when you play it, you can play it singly okay. or double. Wow, that is awesome. Where did you get that? This one was uh, a gift from uh, Island Ray out in Florida, okay. and it's made out of hurricane wood. Okay. So this was a tree that came down in the hurricane and Ray came to one of my shows in Florida and he said, I'm going to gift you a flute. And so he gave me this wonderful flute that mm. I brought all over the world with me because it has a very unique tone. Okay. Yeah, that, that is, wow, that is pretty cool. I've never seen one like that. That's pretty interesting. <laughs> 